This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. This is Taylor Stevens, the New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of Kick-Ass International Thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time, and this is a Hack the Craft episode. All right, so we are back again, and for our podcast listeners, I have lost track of what, <laughs> what episode in this little series we're on, but we have started with a discussion about dialogue. And then we moved into reading the original that we were going to work with for this scene that we're going to edit. And then we outlined what my main concerns were for the piece from a story angle. And then we went in and we read it again and we went through it line by line of what my concerns were for it as it related to my biggest concerns and also some little nitpicky stuff. Then we started breaking it down with the original and how I would rewrite it. And we got through about half the story that way. And now we're on our final section of segment by segment, breakdown and rewrite. And away we go. And away we go. So she, and in this case, this is Cassie. She looked down at her phone, swiped the screen a few times before continuing. The card was presented as an original Mickey Mantle rookie card, part of a set distributed by a company called Tops in 1952. It was described as in perfect condition, and I saw nothing to indicate that it was not in perfect condition. So this right there was really important to keep. So I ended up deleting nearly everything else in this segment and replaced it with new information, except for these parts that I felt were critical and the information that we've been waiting for. She appeared utterly unconcerned while educating me and either didn't feel I was questioning her work or she didn't care. How did you determine the value, I said. I deleted that. Another swipe of her screen. It's a little like appraising a house. I looked at the last few sales, made some adjustments for inflation in the sports memorabilia market, and came up with a price. The last sale was nearly three years ago, and it was for just under $600,000. I replaced that with an actual definition of what appraisal is because I felt like there was so much more interesting detail that could um, could fill this out. And that, like, there are very few people, I think, who would be reading a story like this who wouldn't already have at least some sense of what an appraisal is. And when most of us think of appraisal, we think of house appraisals. So it's not giving us something new. For, for those, like, either, if you know what a house appraisal is, then this is kind of redundant. If you don't know what a house appraisal is, it's not going to give you anything new. So I felt like we could delete it. But if Steve wants to go back in, he can go back in. It's not bad. I was just trying to keep the, the momentum going and make it interesting. So Cassie said, uh, sorry, Reggie says, you said the terminology can be confusing. Is there another term for confirming the value of something? And that's a really, it's a point, it's a good question, but it's a pointed question. And so I just felt like we can get that information in there in a more interactive way. Cassie says, yes, that's called authentication. And depending on the item, it's a much more expensive operation. I expect that Mr. Rudd's buyer paid for authentication, and that's where the discrepancy turned up. So this is also interesting, and it's plot and story related, and it needs to be integrated. So here's where the rewrite took us. Um, This is Reggie's thoughts. It took me a minute, but I got 
what she was really saying. So you don't actually know if the card you appraised was genuine. So this is a very key point as far as what he's after is concerned, and it gets lost in the original. And so this way, it's clearly articulated for the reader. It's there on the page. There's no way to have to read between the lines to get this. Cassie says, not to the level of authentication, no. And Reggie says, but you said it had a fair market value of 850 grand. So this is genuine confusion, which there's no, is the card worth this much? Well, I appraised it for this much. There's just a base understanding between them. They both have seen the appraisal. We don't have to get back into it. The reader has already been made aware of how much that card is worth. So this is stating the obvious as confusion. If she said it was worth 850 grand, how could she say that about a card she didn't even know was real? And that circles us back to why he would have come here to talk about the card. I did, yes, she said. But you see, appraisals of this sort are made on the assumption that the piece is authentic. The card was presented as an original Mickey Mantle rookie, part of a set distributed by Topps in 1952. And my job as an appraiser was to verify its condition and to make a supportable and defensible opinion of value. Authentication is a separate and far more costly process, which I expect is what Mr. Rudd's buyer or the auction house paid for and is why the discrepancy came to light. So this line here, and my job as an appraiser was to verify its condition and to make a supportable and defensible opinion of value, that summarizes the detail of what goes on into an appraisal goes on in an appraisal. That's what house appraisers do. That's what that is what appraisers do. So um, we're going to replace the part about how you appraise a piece of memorabilia, which is similar to appraising a house, which isn't really relevant to what Reggie needs to understand with other, piece of other pieces of information that are, that really would be helpful for him to understand and also to set the tone of what's about to happen in the story. So in the original, Reggie says, could they have hired you for authentication rather than appraisal? Yes, but I'd have hired someone else to handle the card. I can authenticate artwork, that's my background, but very few people want or need that level of detail for insurance purposes. Most high-end art transfers happen through a few large auction houses and they have their own people for that kind of work. I heard the words, but their meaning batted for cycles in my brain, which was more focused on capturing the way her lips moved when she spoke. So that first part about her being authentic, able to authenticate artwork and all of that, that's the information that we need. But as it's currently written, it feels very forced. So my goal is going to be to interweave it with the above segment, the above rewritten piece, so that it avoids any redundancies and it flows with the give and take of natural conversation. As far as Reggie focusing on the way her lips moved, I deleted that. And I deleted the rest of the segment from this point forward because... I wanted to rewrite it for character building, and it's all been replaced with com new conversation and new details. So I'm going to read the rest of this, this segment so you have it, but I'm not, I just, just know that it's all been deleted. I flashed back on the last time this I'd been this distracted talking to a woman, a girl actually, Pam Martin, after eighth grade science. I'd spent weeks working up the nerve to ask her to the spring dance. I'd actually started to pop the question when I stuttered and froze. 
I actually stopped talking and stood there looking like a complete dolt, humiliating, especially after your twin sister finds out and spreads it all over the school. I wrestled my wandering thoughts back to the business at hand. How were you hired for this job? She tapped and swiped at her phone for several seconds. Continental Insurance, they hired me for the job. Is that the norm in your world? The insurance company is your client, I asked. She fluttered a hand. Mostly, yes. I do occasionally work for individual clients, but I primarily work for insurance companies. There are a few of us around the country who do this, and I'm fortunate to be in Florida where there's plenty of work. It keeps me busy. I looked out at the view from her condo, and it seems to be lucrative. She smiled, but didn't respond. If I were an insurance company, I'd want her to stay busy and to deliver every report in person. What kind of supporting information do you provide your clients? She held up her phone. You saw the report I delivered to them. I think the client gets a copy as well, and I provide several photographs of each item on the schedule. So here's the rewrite of that same scene, um, taking into account all the different things that we've already discussed, and so I'm not going to say them all over again. The Reds could have requested you to do authentication if they'd wanted, though, right? So I'm, I have issues with this question still just because I don't know that's the best way to ask it, but the words that I would replace in it, I need those words elsewhere to not have to have repeating the same words all over. This is the best that, I'm up, that I've got right now. So the Reds could have requested you to do authentication if they wanted, though, right? Me, yes, but I'd have brought on someone else to handle the card. Memorabilia isn't my area of expertise. I can authenticate artwork because that's my background, but not all appraisers do or can is that level of detail since at that, uh, since that level of detail, this is what happens when I can't edit my own work. <laughs> I've got duplicate in here. <laughs> since very few collectors need that level of detail for insurance purposes. I'm going to fix this. Hang on. Real-time editing. Real-time editing, yes. <laughs> okay. Most of the high-end art transfers take place through a handful of auction houses, and they have their own people for that kind of work. So Cassie's Diction, this is just a little note, a little hack-the-craft thingy here. Cassie's Diction is more sophisticated than Reggie's, which in itself gives her a sense of proper formality. And it's going to be important to keep this consistent throughout the story. And the easiest way for me to do that is to imagine her speaking with an accent. Her name has a British ring to it, Cassandra Pennington. So that, that's what I put in my head, it's what I hear in my head when she speaks, and that helps me keep her syntax consistent. Accents are a trick I sometimes use to keep all the characters keep all the characters from speaking in the same way. So use it if you want, Steve. Ignore it if you want. That's just what I use. That was my little trick. Okay, so she's just explained that she would have brought someone else and that most of the high-end art transfers take place through the auction houses, blah, blah, blah. So Reggie says, so it's normal for collectors to insure unauthenticated art or memorabilia? It's fairly common. And insurance companies pay out claims even if the pieces aren't authenticated? Usually, yes. The cynic in me saw easy opportunity for theft and fraud. The rest of me doubted it could really be that simple, but then I thought about that ugly $12 million kids painting and how I could probably recreate it at home in half a day easy and had a change of mind. I said, if the appraiser works off the assumption a piece is authentic, and if insurers pay out on unauthenticated pieces, what's to stop someone from insuring $20 million in forgeries, burning down the house, and reaping the insurance windfall? So... Um, this thing about him going back to that 
$12 million painting. This is the third circle back now to that particular painting, and it's also the punchline. So by using the same element multiple times, it gives a sense of purpose. It gives that visual element a sense of purpose in the story. It's not always possible to do this, but if it is possible, the story is always going to feel richer for it. So by now, we've worn that imagery out. It's, it's done, and it's had a good run, but it's over. And so if it does turn up again, it's going to be way later in the story as an anchor to jog the reader's memory, connect what comes later to something in one of these scenes. That's why we'll use it again, but we've burned it out. So this here, though, is the punchline to that entire, why we kept bringing it up is to get this information of what's coming next down here from Cassie. So he said, what's to stop someone from insuring the forgeries and burning down the house, reaping the insurance windfall, she says, or arranging for the forged pieces to be quote unquote stolen, she said, or that happens more often than the industry is willing to admit, she said, but usually not in the double digit millions. For one thing, not many legitimate collectors are willing to drop big money on pieces with dubious provenance, and at a bare minimum, a good appraiser is going to research provenance. An experienced appraiser, someone like me, would also be able to identify signatures, research any markings, generally notice if something seems off about a piece and articulate why. Sketchy appraisals and uncertain provenance are two of the first things an adjuster is going to look at when considering an art claim. Well, there went my forgery career. It was fun while it lasted. I said, provenance, that's the history of ownership? Yes. And as to the Mickey Mantle card specifically, the provenance was good. So that's all information that Reggie actually needs to know. Um, and it's all new material. It's, it's detail that gives the story a bit more depth and texture to the world of art and memorabilia fraud. And these, like I said, are things that Reggie needs to know. He didn't need to know how she arrived at the card's value. That I mean, I could be wrong, could come up later. But as of right now, that really didn't pertain to the story itself or the plot as much as understanding how this works. And there's going to be more coming in a minute. Um, so... We already knew that if it was a real card, it would sell for more than she valued it at. So that's kind of moot. And so this exchange provides the opportunity for genuine, genuine character interplay because the details are inter and because the details are interspersed within that interplay, they're not going to feel like an info dump. And Reggie's questions are a natural result of the information he's being given, so they feel authentic and not like an interrogation. And that's how real-life conversation works. And these added details also allow the conversation to progress beyond the very basic boring questions, which is an opportunity for Cassie's personality to come out, and we get a bit of a sense of who and what she is as a person. So, in re so she tells him... And as to the Mickey Mantle card specifically, the provenance was good. And he says, are there ways around provenance? Her eyes widened in mock surprise. She placed a hand over her heart and said, why, Mr. Carpenter, are you quite certain you haven't actually come for a step-by-step -step tutorial on how to commit and get away with fraud? I kept a straight face. That wasn't my original intent, I said, but now that you've offered. So this that banter right there between them, that's what I'm talking about when I say dialogue is character. That is interplay. It's, that's, you, they're real life people toying with each other. Cassie leaned back and laughed. 
It was a deep, whole-body laughter that set off all the whistles inside my head and made me want to follow with another crack just so she'd keep on laughing. I knew then that she was going to be trouble, but I didn't want to stop playing. So that's Reggie being enamored without being creepy or saying the quiet parts out loud. He likes her, but he hasn't forgotten why he's here in the first place either. She said, well, in the case of sports memorabilia, the most common way to pass off a forgery as legitimate is to use an experienced and inexperienced authenticator who then unwittingly attests to a fraudulent certificate of authenticity. And there you have it. A forgery enters the market as real. That brought me back to earth with an unpleasant thud. So the Mickey Mantle could have been a fake when Charles, Rod Charles Rudd bought it. She shrugged. I'm not an investigator. I wouldn't be able to say one way or the other, but art fraud can be rather difficult to detect. So if it was fake at the time of purchase, it's possible even the dealer didn't know. There's a price point beneath which insurance don't, insurers don't spend much time or effort investigating claims, and it's easier for fraudsters of all stripes to slip by unnoticed if they stay beneath that threshold. So for example, a $90,000 baseball card or even an $850,000 one, she said. He says, 850 isn't exactly chump change. She took a long sip of tea. You've seen the list of appraised items in the Rudd estate. Relatively speaking, that card was an afterthought. Had Charles reported it stolen and filed a claim before the discrepancy became known, he'd have, he'd have had his 850 without much fuss. So that's all new material. And it's deleted what's redundant, and it's added information, and it ties into the plot that opens up Charles Rudd as a suspect. I thought of Rudd and his obstinate refusal to file a police report and wondered again about why. Does he know that, I said? So this here is an example of how inner dialogue that pre-explains why a question is about to be asked can soften the feel of the question itself and make it feel less like an interrogation, even if the question is worded exactly the same as if there was no inner dialogue. If you read this with and without the prefacing inner dialogue, you can see the difference for yourself. So important point of note, using inner dialogue that does not pre-explain the question will not soften the interrogatory, however you pronounce it, effect of a direct question. If you go back and look through the original for places where my comments were interrogation, you will see that the prefacing inner dialogue, if there was any, had nothing to do with the question and thus had no bearing on how much of an interrogation the direct question felt. As a writing exercise, you can go back and reword those inner dialogue segments so they pre-explain why, the why behind the question and see what kind of impact that makes on the conversational tone. That's your guys' assignment. So Reggie had asked, does he know that? I said, her sly smile returned, you'd have to ask him. I try not to make a habit of dropping suggestible hints to clients, it's bad for business. She nudged the file box in my direction. These are my backup hard copies. I need them returned, obviously, but I do a fair amount of work in Elon and can pick them up when I'm in town next week. The only thing that's missing are the images. So here's where that file box was leading. 
It's clear that she's still working with digital because these are her backup hard copies. And him needing her to email the files keeps that part, the, the photo files, keeps that part of the future plot working seamlessly. But this will allow us to restructure the scene ending and it'll also provide us an easy, non-awkward reason for these two to meet again. So now we're back to the original text. Oh, uh, I also highlighted, okay, sorry, my bad. I'm goofing myself here. Okay, so here's the original text again. He asks, does that mean you took pictures of the Mickey Mantle card while you were there? And I highlighted, this is important. So she says, of course, would you like me to send them to you? He says, do you have copies I could look at? She shook her hand and her eyes flashed amusement. No, I don't keep photographs lying around. My business is mostly digital, but I can email the images to you. They're very high resolution and should answer any questions you may have. I gave her business card and stood needing to get out before I said or did anything stupid. I thanked her for the tea and she led me back to the foyer. So this part about the photos being high resolution, that's also really important. Um, I've deleted almost everything else in this scene and restructured it. She says, I do a lot of work in Ilan. And she said with one hand on the elevator button, I'll give you a call next time. Maybe we can do lunch or something. I stammered some type of embarrassing reply and saw a smile that lit her entire face just before the do door closed. Smooth, Reggie, very smooth. So I have just one little note here that says, a smile that lights up a woman's face comes when a guy has been charming or witty or entertaining or funny, but not when he's been a bumbling, mumbling, socially awkward dumbass. So by implication here, in spite of the wording, she's laughing at him, not with him. This is not a great setup for her being eager to do more than grab the papers and get gone when they next meet. So what we're going for here is an exchange of equals vibe. So here's the rewrite. He asks her, she's already told him, here's the box there, my hard copies, the only thing that's missing are the photos, right? He says, you have photos of Mickey Mantle? So this skips past the tediousness of everyone stating the obvious and he goes straight to the core question. Naturally, I'll have to email them to you. So she doesn't ask if he wants her to email them. That he does was already obvious in his question. And this is the way that real conversation works unless people are being deliberately obtuse and abstruse. And in that case, forcing the other to state the obvious can be a great way to convey antagonism and passive aggression. But these guys were not antagonists, so that didn't make any sense for them to have that kind of conversation. So she says, naturally, I'll have to email them to you. They're very high resolution and should give you a good comparison between what was in that frame when I appraised the card to what's in there now. Maybe that will help answer some of your questions. Photos would be fantastic, I said. Thank you. I offered her a card so she'd have my contact information and tugged the file box to my side of the table and then onto my lap. I'd already seen the appraisal, which put odds of finding anything useful in this pound of paper somewhere between slim and none, but... If Cassandra Pennington planned to stop by to get the box next time she was in Elon, no way in heck was I leaving Miami without it. So this is implied, nearly explicit, declaration that he wants to see her again. And rather than bumble about it, he's being strategic in a non-creepy way. She offered the files. He just happens to be following through for reasons of his own. So it's perfectly safe to cut the scene here. We don't need to see him leave the apartment or do the goodbyes or anything. We can cold open in a new scene chapter wherever we want to put him next. And if there's anything missing that didn't get shown here in real time, we can have him reflect back on the conversation and put it there. And that's a trick that helps keep the little boring stuff out of the real time and keep the story moving. And that's where we are with that.
So that closed out all the editing, and since kind of the 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 rewrite got kind of chopped up, I'm going to go ahead now and just read the rewrite, start to finish, without any um, interjection on my part. And it's been a long time now. I think we're on episode four or five of this since the original was read. So you, if you're listening by podcast, you'd have to go back and listen to the original. If you're um, doing this by video tutorial, I guess you can rewind and go back and, and read it there to get a really good side-by-side comparison. But here we go with the rewrite. The doors opened to an elegant foyer and to a woman who stood waiting. She was early 30s, maybe about two inches shorter than my own, six feet two, barefoot in faded jeans and a loose white t-shirt, toes sporting bright red polish and golden hair piled atop her head in a messy bun. A smudge of blue paint decorated her nose. I don't know what I expected to find this side of the phone call, but seeing her, I temporarily lost the ability to speak. She offered a heart-stopping smile and stretched a hand toward mine. Mr. Carpenter, she said. I nodded, shook in greeting and forced air to my vocal cords. Cassandra Pennington, I presume. Just Cassie, she said. Come on in. I followed her around the corner into a spacious high-ceiling open-floor unit decorated nearly entirely in minimalist white, which offset enormous paintings that filled the walls and the room with vibrant color. She caught me looking and said, Do you know much about art, Mr. Carpenter? Not enough to understand why something I could have drawn in kindergarten would be worth $12 million, I said. I pointed to the 10 by 10 on the far wall, but that, in my layman's opinion, is pretty amazing. Thank you, she said. It's one of mine. I guess that explained the blue paint on her nose. She led out onto the ocean view balcony where an outdoor sofa sat beneath an awning shade. Its table held an open book and a glass of something green. Can I offer you anything, she said. Coffee, tea? Tea would be great, I said. She left me there, and I walked the length of the railing, taking in the view, inhaling briny air and trying to corral now very scattered thoughts. She returned a few minutes later with a pitcher and tumblers on a tray. The blue paint on her nose was gone. She slid into the chair in front of the book, motioned to the seat opposite, poured a glass, and handed it to me. I couldn't help but notice her ring finger was gloriously bare. She said, so then, Mr. Reginald Randolph Carpenter, what can I do for you? The way my name, my full name rolled off her tongue made my cheeks flush. It also told me that in the few hours since our call, she'd done her research and probably already knew more about me than my own dear mother, which put me at a distinct disadvantage, and that if this came to a war of wits, I was going to lose. That didn't mean I had to surrender without a fight. The second, I said. She raised her eyebrows. If we're going full-on formal, my name's Reginald Randolph Carpenter the second, though I much prefer Reggie. She smiled slyly and spooned sugar into her glass. All right, Reggie, she said. I've got 30 minutes until I have to prepare for another appointment, so best make use of the time. I was tempted to pull the notepad pad from my back pocket and up the ante on her formality bid, but I couldn't bring myself to do it. I said, offhand, how much do you remember about the Red Estate appraisal? She leaned toward the seat next to her, picked up a small file box, and placed it on the table. Offhand, not much at all, she said, but I refreshed my memory after Elizabeth called. I'm looking into the baseball card. The Mickey Mantle, she said. That's the one. The card's been part of the Red Estate for over 15 years. Charles Red recently decided it was time to sell, but the auction house returned it as a replica. Elizabeth did mention that. Yet your appraisal valued it at 850000 It did, yes. And that was as recent as just over a year ago. A year and four months, to be precise, she said. But I can I pause you for a second and possibly save us both some time? 
I'd been under the impression from Elizabeth's call and the release form she sent that you were looking to audit the appraisal documents. They're all here, by the way. You're welcome to them. But I expect I've misunderstood. If I'm reading you correctly, what you're actually interested in is narrowing the time frame on whenever whatever happened to the card might have happened. There's that, I said, but yours were the last professional hands to come in physical contact with it prior to the auction house, which makes your insight valuable, and that's what I'm hoping for. I see. She leaned back and draped an arm over the seat. I'm afraid you've wasted a trip, Mr. Carpenter. There's not much I can offer that will be of any use. Disappointment must have crossed my face, though if I'm being honest, that had more to do with the way she reverted to formality than to any supposed lack of helpful information. She said, how much do you know about the way appraisals work? About as much as I know about art. The quip made her smile. She said, the terminology can be confusing. A lot of people conflate appraisal with authentication, but when it comes to art and memorabilia, they're not the same thing. It took me a minute, but I got what she was really saying. So you don't actually know if the card you appraised was genuine? Not to the level of authentication, no. But you said it had a fair market value of 850 grand. I did, yes. But you see, appraisals of this sort are made on the assumption that the piece is authentic. The card was presented as an original Mickey Mantle rookie part of a set distributed by Topps in 1952, and my job as an appraiser was to verify its condition and to make a supportable and defensible opinion of value. Authentication is a separate and far more costly process, which I expect is what Mr. Rudd's buyer or the auction house paid for and is why the discrepancy came to light. The Rudds could have requested you to do authentication if they'd wanted, though, right? Me, yes, but I'd have brought some on someone else to handle the card. Memorabilia isn't my area of expertise. I can authenticate artwork because that's my background, but not all appraisers do or can, as few collectors need that level of detail for insurance purposes. Most of the high-end art transfers take place through a handful of auction houses, and they have their own people for that kind of work. So it's normal for collectors to insure unauthenticated art or memorabilia. It's fairly common. And insurance companies pay out claims, even if the pieces aren't authenticated. Usually, yes. The cynic in me saw easy opportunity for theft and fraud. The rest of me doubted it could really be that simple, but then I thought about that ugly $12 million kid's painting and how I could probably recreate it at home in half a day easy and had a change of mind. I said, if the appraiser works off the assumption a piece is authentic, and if insurers pay out on unauthenticated pieces, what's to stop someone from insuring $20 million in forgeries, burning down the house, and reaping the insurance windfall? Or arranging for the forged pieces to be quote-unquote stolen, she said. Or that. Happens more often in the industry than the industry is willing to admit, she said, but usually not in the double-digit millions. For one thing, not many legitimate collectors are willing to drop big money on pieces with dubious provenance, and at a bare minimum, a good appraiser is going to research provenance. An experienced appraiser, someone like me, would also be able to identify signatures, research any markings, generally notice if something seems off about a piece, and articulate why. Sketchy appraisals and uncertain provenance are two of the first things an adjuster is going to look at when considering an art claim. Well, there went my forgery career. It was fun while it lasted. I said, provenance, that's the history of ownership? Yes, and as the Mickey Mantle card specifically, the provenance was good. Are there ways around provenance? Her eyes widened in mock surprise. 
she placed a hand over her heart and said, why, Mr. Carpenter, are you quite certain you haven't actually come for a step-by-step tutorial on how to commit and get away with fraud? I kept a straight face. That wasn't my original intent, I said, but now that you've offered. She leaned back and laughed. It was deep, whole-body laughter that set off all the whistles inside my head and made me want to follow with another crack just so she'd keep on laughing. I knew then she was going to be trouble, but I didn't want to stop playing. She said, well, in the case of sports memorabilia, the most common way to pass off a forgery as legitimate is to use an inexperienced authenticator who then unwittingly attests to a fraudulent certificate of authenticity. And there you have it. A forgery enters the market as real. That brought me back to earth with an unpleasant thud. So the Mickey Mantle could have been a fake when Charles Rudd bought it. I'm not an investigator. I wouldn't be able to say one way or the other, but art fraud can be rather difficult to detect. So if it was fake at time of purchase, it's possible even the dealer didn't know. There's a price point beneath which insurers don't spend much time or effort investigating claims, and it's easier for fraudsters of all stripes to slip by unnoticed if they stay beneath that threshold. So, for example, a $90,000 baseball card or even an $850,000 one, she said. Eight fifty dollars isn't exactly chump change. She took a long slip of tea, long sip of tea. You've seen the list of appraised items in the Red Estate. Relatively speaking, that card was an afterthought. Had Charles, re, had Charles reported it stolen and filed a claim before the discrepancy became known, he'd have had his eight fifty without much fuss. I thought of Rudd and his obstinate refusal to file a police report and wondered again about why. Does he know that, I said. Her sly smile returned. You'd have to ask him. I try not to make a habit of dropping suggestible hints to clients. It's bad for business. She nudged the file box in my direction. These are my backup hard copies. I need them returned, obviously, but I do a fair amount of work in Elon and can pick them up when I'm in town next week. Only thing that's missing are the images. You have photos of the Mickey Mantle? Naturally, I'll have to email them to you. They're very high resolution and should give you a good comparison between what was in the frame when I appraised the card to what's in there now. Maybe that will help answer some of your questions. Photos would be fantastic, I said. Thank you. I offered her a card so she'd have my contact information and tug the file box to my side of the table and then onto my lap. I'd already seen the appraisal, which put odds of finding anything useful in this pound of paper somewhere between slim and none. But if Cassandra Pennington planned to stop by to get the box next time she was in Elon, no way in heck was I leaving Miami without it. And there we have it. So that is the end of a total of five parts on going going through a single scene and a piece that I had written, Taylor massaged beautifully, and you could hear the you could hear the massive difference in just the way everything flowed in the final version that she read. It probably would be interesting to just go back and listen to episode two of this series where she read my version for the first time and, and just compare the two. I think that would probably be uh, interesting. As we've said throughout, uh, this is a Hack the Craft tutorial. So all of the information that we have here, including the video, are at patreon.com slash Taylor Stevens. There's some extra material that will be there as well for Patreon patrons. That's that's kind of hard to say. And uh, this has been fun. I, I've enjoyed it. I think that for Chit Chat, for our next show, it would be interesting to just talk through my reaction to this when it was yeah. happening. But I don't want to do it now because we're at the end of, of this. You know, we this is this episode's running a little bit long. But it would be fun to do 
at uh, the beginning of the next show, which we will do, and we will be back in your ear again next Tuesday. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for being with us, guys. See you next week.